Welcome to talk about poetry, where working poets gather to discuss poems they like, are impressed by, annoyed by, or otherwise engaged by. Today we'll be discussing work by the American poet Bill Knott, called by James Wright, quote, an unmistakable genius, and an influence on a number of poets, including Mary Carr, Thomas Lux, Stephen Dobbins, and Dennis Johnson. Bill Knott died in 2014 at the age of 74. He once wrote of himself, quote, my poetic career is nugatory. No editor will countenance my work. I've been forced to self-publish my poetry in vanity volumes. I am persona non grata and universally despised or ridiculed by everyone in the poetry world. Perhaps the listener will wonder, then, why discuss the poetry of someone who self-describes his career in quite that way? The answer is because James Wright, and also another person, Dennis Johnson, are right when they called Bill Knott a genius. Like many geniuses, he was not neglected, but he was not embraced either. He was easily the closest thing that the poetry establishment has had to a rebel. I'm Bob Hers, publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine, which you can find online at ninemile.org, of the Nine Mile Talk About Poetry blog, which you can also find online, and of Nine Mile Press, publisher of books by David St. John, James Cervantes, Michael Burkhart, Sam Pereira, and many others. Nine Mile Books and Magazine are the sponsors of this podcast. With me today are three well-known poets with a multitude of many talents, Steve Casisto, Phil Memmer, and Georgia Popoff. I invite them to introduce themselves. Georgia? Thanks, Bob. I'm Georgia Popoff. I work and write in Syracuse, New York, where I am the workshops coordinator for the YMCA's Downtown Writers Center and our Young Authors Academy. I have three collections of poetry. The most recent is from Tiger Bark Press. It's called Salter, the Agnostics Book of Common Curiosities. I'm Phil Memmer. I'm the executive director of the YMCA's Downtown Writers Center in Syracuse, New York, and also associate editor for Tiger Bark Press. And my most recent book of poems is The Storehouses of the Snow, Psalms, Parables, and Dreams from Lost Horse Press. I'm Steve Cousisto, a professor at Syracuse University. My most recent poetry collection from Copper Canyon Press is Letters to Borges. Steve is also co-editor and co-publisher of Nine Mile Press and Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. About Bill Knott, uh, his first collection of poems was called the Naomi Poems, Cops and Beans. It was published in 1968 under the name St. Giraud, a fictional persona and, frankly, a, a minor character in a 17th century French pornographic novel. It was claimed that the real poet had committed suicide two years prior to the publication of the book. That, of course, was a persona that apparently let him write the poems that influenced so many people at the time. Knott was a prolific poet. He published 16 volumes of poems, including several that were self-published, and all of which are available now on his website. We can start with the reading of one of his poems, The Closet. As background, it may be helpful to know that Knott was an orphan who spent a year in an institution for the mentally ill in Elgin, Illinois, when he was 15 years old. He worked with his uncle at a farm in Michigan, spent two years in the Army, and wrote his first book while working as a hospital orderly. Steve Casisto, I wonder if you might read the, the poem, The Closet. The Closet after my mother's death. Here not long enough, after the hospital happened, I find her closet lying empty and stop my play and go in and crane up at three black wire hangers, which quiver, airy, released. They appear to enjoy their new distance, cognizance born of the absence of anything else. The closet has been cleaned out full flush as surgeries, where the hangers could be amiable scalpels, though they just as well would be themselves, in basements, glovelessly scraping uteri, but here 
pure, transfigured heavenward, their birds, whose wingspans expand by excluding me. Their range is enlarged by loss. They'd leave buzzards measly as moths, and the hat shelf is even higher as the sky over a prairie, an undotted desert where nothing can swoop sudden, crumple in secret. I've fled at ambush, tag, age, six. Must I face this? Can I have my hide-and-seek hole back now, please? The clothes, the thicket of shoes, where is it? Only the hangers are at home here. Come air to this rare element, fluent, their skeletal grace sings of the ease with which they let go the dress, slip housecoat or blouse so absolvingly. Free they fly, trim, triangular, augers leapt ahead from some geometric god who soars stripped of flesh, it is said. Catnip to a brat placated by model airplane kits, kids my size lack motor skills for. I wind my glue-scabbed, pawing goo-goo fingernails, glaze skins, fun to peer in as frosty glass doors. But the closet has no windows, opaque or sheer. I must shut my eyes, shrink within to peep into this wall. Soliciting sleep, I'll dream, mother spilled and cold, unpillowed, the operating table cracked to goad delivery, its stirrups slack, its forceps closed. By it I'll see mobs of obstetrical personnel kneel, proud, congratulatory, cooing and ooing, and hold the dead infant up to the dead woman's face as if for approval, the prompted beholding, tears, a zoom-shot kiss, white-masked doctors and nurses patting each other on the back, which is how, in the Old West, a hangman, if he was good, could gauge the heft of his intended. Awake, the hangers are sharper, knife and slice. I jump helplessly to catch them, to twist them clear, misshape them whole, sail them across the small air space of the closet. I shall find room enough here by excluding myself. By excluding myself, I'll grow. It's a very moving poem. Uh, it's certainly also very different from the poems on which he, he made his uh, initial reputation. Uh, Steve, you'd wanted to bring that poem forward. Do you have some, some thoughts on it? I would say uh, three things appeal to me about the poem. Uh, one is simply autobiographical on my own part. I was a disabled child in the 1950s and early 60s, and uh, like many a kid with a disability, I spent a fair amount of time alone. In fact, in a, in a memoir I'm finishing now, I describe spending significant time alone in a bomb shelter under my parents' house where I told stories all alone to myself. And so the poem, which is really about that terrible moment when a child realizes his mother is truly gone and he's really arrived in that closet because it's a place to play. They're playing hide-and-seek, he and, and, uh, and friends, and he discovers the ineluctable reality that, that his mother's gone. That speaks to me as it must to any reader as a terribly poignant. There's another reason I like this poem a good deal, and it has to do with the way in which a poet who became well-known for employing surrealist imagery and a great deal of jazzy, percussive language manages to move a poem which appears at first to be singularly about a closet and about those coat hangers 
representing the absence of his mother, he moves that poem into whole realms of suffering and knowledge, so that by the end of the poem, it's an architectonic narrative about suffering, many levels of suffering. Absolutely right, and it's extraordinary how that safe space becomes really a space of terror by the end. George, I know you had some yeah, strong well, feelings about the poem, too. My emotional connection with this is the fact that I lost my mother when I was 14, and I was the oldest of five of us. The most recent was three days old when my mother died. Mm-hmm. So I read this poem, and it took me back to all those memories. The first line here, not long enough after the hospital happened. Like the, It's not that my mom went to the hospital. It's the hospital happened, and that seeing it in those phrases. I just wrote an essay about that day, but I'm also seeing my younger sisters and brother. When something like this happens to a family, the children are not very well informed. Something just magically happens that changes everything. And the things that adults say to children about it are either fanciful or painful. Some horrible things were said to my siblings and myself at the time. And this captures it in a way I'm thinking mostly of my brother, but also my my sister. They were five, seven, and eight when my mother died. And it was a much different experience for them. All of a sudden, there was just a hole. And all of a sudden, her things were disappearing. And that's all the way through this poem, that that nothingness that the adults consumed in their own grief, you know, clean things out. And nobody says anything to the kids. And here, he probably, you know, if we're thinking about the speaker of this poem, he went to that closet to hide a lot. The other thing that's compelling as a woman is what hangers represent. And hangers represent a lot of things. I just wrote an essay on uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, the mother. And the whole nod to the fact that Hangers are used themselves in basements, gloveless,ly scraping uteri, but here, tra- pure, transfigured, heavenward. He's so cognizant of women in this poem in a way that is really striking to me. And that haunting mother all the way through, she's not there and she's there from beginning to end. Her absence is so palpable, and it, it strikes something so right into my very marrow. And a grief for my my siblings, that nothing is ever the same when something like that happens. And this poem captures it so well. And all you can do is keep going, grow. You know, the child grows up without the parent and that's it. Can we notice that the speaker of the poem, it seems to be two people, or at least maybe at two stages in life. One is the child, right? And was a child young enough to say, not long enough after the hospital happened. But there's also a person who says, they're new distant, they appear to enjoy their new distance cognizance born of the absence of anything else. That's not a child's perception. That's an adult's perception. So what we have here is kind of two sensibilities reacting to this closet, uh, both at the same time. It is creating a kind of a, I guess for me, what seems to be an undigested emotion trying to deal with it and to deal with the image of it so that at the end, when he's sailing the, the hangers across that small space of the, of the closet, that I, I can't really quite tell whether that's the child or the adult but somehow they're coming together in this final act of violence that clears out the hangers from the closet and then excludes himself from the act and from the, from the death. At least that's how I'm saying well, it. Yeah, I'd like to speak to that in that, you know, if it is in fact true that we really are all the ages we've ever been, then the speaker of the poem, I mean, none of the, except for that first line in here, not long enough after the hospital happened, that's a very childlike statement, but still, none of the language in this poem is a six-year-old language, except every so often to remind us that he's tapping into his, his emotion from that time period, but speaking from the standpoint of the adult looking back at it. So he is sort of emotionally unstuck in time, 
But each of us has that capacity emotionally, and this poem does that so well. I mean, if you think about, if you were to write a poem about when you were 6 or 12, you're not going to write it in that a certain adult perception, but how can you bring that element of who you were and what you thought at a different age? He does that beautifully. And his syntax, it's, it's just... I haven't read a poem about this circumstance of a mother being lost to a family that hits home to the truth that I know quite as much as this poem does for me. I'm really appreciative to, ex to experience the poem. There are terrifying moments in everyone's life, it seems, when we suddenly know far more than circumstances uh, would suggest we should. And we can call that intuition, we can call it you know, tragic irony, we can call it many different things. But it is also true of children. And in fact, in Robert Skoll's famous uh, book about the political lives of children, we understand from uh, the work he did that he was, a, you know, he was a psychologist, right, a social psychologist, that children, especially in moments of tragedy, have tremendous capacity to understand what's going on. People in my generation remember what happened on the day JFK was murdered. You know, I came home and told my mother and she hit me. <laughs> so there are moments when you have a very strong sense of you've outstepped your age, right? He was six years old when his mother died, and yet the child in him, who is still present in this poem, knows that a, a terrible cruelty of matter, the indifference of matter, the indifference of those coat hangers, the indifference of empty air, that all of those things will never be, he'll never be able to forget those. And then he, he reflects on, you know, he's, somebody's obviously given him model airplanes to, you know, put together, and he's got glue all over his fingers and he peels that glue off of his fingers and looks through the little translucence of those glue peelings, right? Every child who's ever made a model airplane does that, and of course, that's the up-close intimacy of tragedy, right? It's, it's what you do in a tiny world made more intense by deprivation. And then he says, and the closet had no windows, right? He has little windows on his fingers, but there are no windows in that closet. Whereupon he begins flinging those coat hangers, right? And they're, they're the model airplanes, right, that he would have assembled. So I think it's the, the whole poem is in the voice of a very wise child made smart by, by loss. It's one of the things I like about it. It's definitely something the poem is playing with throughout. You know, there, every once in a while, you know, there is a phrase. Uh, the one that jumped out at me was, can I have my hide-and-seek hole back now, please? Right. You know, which is, you know, every bit something a six-year-old could say, and unlike most of the poem in that regard, but, you know, it's enough, and it's about halfway through the poem, that it really, you know, grounds you back again in that child's personality. Just for a moment before we go on to come heir to this rare element, fluent their skeletal grace sings of the ease with which they let go the dress, slip, house coat, or blouse so absolvingly. You know, again, it's that tension between the young voice, the young, the young narrator, and, and the experienced narrator coming back. I really saw this as a kind of an anthemic piece for himself an older person reliving that horror uh, of the closet and of the hangers and of the desolation of it all. Thus we get the adult language in the child's situation. I find her closet lying empty and stop my play. Well, that's the six-year-old now, right, the seven-year-old. But it's the, it's the adult who's saying cognizance born of the absence of anything else. And I think at the end, recognizing the small space of the closet and cleaning out the hangers, right, the last vestige of what had been there, it's the adult who says, I shall find enough room here in this small space uh, by excluding myself. And by excluding myself, I will grow. I will now deal with this traumatic uh, situation 
that I've just lived through of the death of my mother and of, of my sorrowing and grieving over it. That's how I kind of come at the poem. So it's the older poet now reliving the undigested, because you couldn't digest it, not truly, a death of the mother through the empty hangers now in the closet and now excluding himself from that, right? Walling himself off from that small space in order to grow because otherwise to live is to live in the land of grief from which there is no escape and there is no growth. One more reading, I guess, maybe on this mm -hmm. an incredible poem. I think they're all connected. I mean, it's a indeed, it's a it's a complex poem. It's a complex poem. I need to turn to my expert in syllabics here. Am I right? This is all in syllabics, elevens and twelves. It is. So there's so in addition to everything else we've been talking about, there's some real control going on in each one of these stanzas. The, for the listener who has not seen the poem, these are four line stanzas throughout, and the syllabics are elevens and twelves throughout. So he's really controlled what's happening with the language as he moves his way through it. Phil, you've written in syllabics. They're not in, it's not easy to do, is it's, it? It's a very difficult thing to do in English and make sound good. Our poetry in English predominantly is what we would call accentual syllabic. It's a, it's a, uh, we'll often focus our forms around a certain syllable count, but more importantly, a number of stresses that we're counting. So when we talk about something like iambic pentameter, we're, we're yes, we're counting these little blocks of two syllables, five of them, but we're counting the stresses and the pattern of those stresses. So to write just in syllabics in English and to make it sound this good is tricky because our ears are focused not around the length of a phrase, but the emphases in that phrase. Most of what I understood about accentuals uh, and, and feet was, was uh, Yeats, right? Those four four foot lines, bum, 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 right? So sure. Yeah. This is really quite extraordinary. I want to think a little bit about about the totality of, of Knott's career. He invented a persona for himself early on, saint Giraud, right, who he said was a suicide and a death. In fact, rather shockingly, I think, Paris Review, in noting that he had died, was wondering whether this was maybe another fictive effort on Knott's <laughs> own part, right? So they sort of doubted the death a little bit for a brief period of time. But he, he adopted other personas, and his whole persona about how I'm despised, I'm the outcast, I'm the rebel, nobody loves me, was yet maybe another one of those personas. And maybe that was a way, I'm opening this as a question, for him to write in as many different forms as he wrote in. I mean, he wrote sonnets, he wrote rhyme poems, he wrote unrhymed poems, he wrote these incredible, you know, that first book, the Naomi poems, were just extraordinary sort of romantic poems all the way through. Mm. So his, his range was uh, amazing. He was incredibly prolific poet. And if you were a literary journal editor, probably any time over the last 20 or 25 years, at some point in your career, you probably received an envelope in the mail from Bill Knott with a Xeroxed book in it of poems that uh, he'd written, had not published with a major publishing house because he just wrote too many books for the publishing houses to keep up with. You know, he, he had a couple of publishers who regularly published his work. And, you know, I remember one day very vividly, I was, I was reasonably new to editing a, editing a literary journal called Two Rivers Review. And one day I got an envelope in the mail from Bill Knott. I was super excited and it was fat. I thought I had, you know, 50 poems to choose from for my journal or something. And it turns out it was this Xerox stapled book. And the entire front and back covers of it were blurbs from very famous writers talking about what a genius Bill Knott was. <laughs> At the very back of it, it said, then why do I have to Xerox my books and staple them together and send them to you? You know, it's just this <laughs> sort of remarkably eccentric little thing. And it was a beautiful book. It was extraordinary. I, I, I didn't buy it. And I wish I had. The old Grolier's Bookshop 
uh, in the early 70s, I came across a book called O Realism, you know, AU Realism, right? O Realism, which was what an odd name. We know about surrealism and neorealism and so on. This thing called O Realism. So I didn't buy the book, but I heard later the story, which was he'd been at a dinner party and the lady next to him said to him, uh, So, Mr. Knott, what do you do? He said, Well, I'm a poet. She said, Oh, really? And that was the last thing she said to him for the rest of the night. Whereupon he invented a school of poetry called O-Realism. You know, every poet should subscribe. Oh, really? O-Realism. <laughs> what else would you do? Steve, you were at, he was at Iowa when you were there? Uh, I ran across him several times. He came to the Iowa Writers' Workshop to teach in the early 1980s. I had graduated by then but was living in Iowa City, and so I'd see him frequently in the Prairie Lights Bookshop, independent bookstore in Iowa City. He'd be in there smoking a cigarette and looking at the collections of poems. We knew each other slightly prior to that. I had invited him to Hobart and William Smith Colleges back in the late 1970s to give a reading. I was a student there at the time, and he came by Greyhound bus and spent a couple of days in uh, upstate New York with me, and we had quite a few conversations about everything from Mayakovsky, how in America... We had great freedom as poets because nobody reads poetry, and so you can say whatever you want in a poem, and it doesn't matter. You know. And he was constantly handing me books of poems of his that he carried around in a mailman's sack, and he'd hand me the books of poems and say, I'm still correcting this one, and then he'd take it back and cross out a poem. Uh, you know, He was inveterate uh, when it came to endlessly revising uh, everything, and I still have many of those books. I, I treasure them. Minuscule chicken scratch handwriting on every page where he's arguing with his own poems. He was famous for doing some pretty eccentric stuff as a poet. He did declare himself dead. And then after he did that, you may recall, he published an essay called Posthumism, in which he said that in the face of the Vietnam War and all of the war atrocities going on, that the only ethical act is to declare yourself dead and write from the vantage point of a corpse. And he came to Hobart College in the late 60s during that period. And our friend, our mutual friend, the poet Jim Krenner, who was there at the time, remembers not showing up and not speaking. He just turned up on campus and, and wouldn't speak because he had declared himself dead. And uh, <laughs> he had a, a woman with him, an amanuensis, as it were, who would uh, translate his thoughts for people. Bill's tired now. Uh, Bill needs to go lie down, you know, and he, he actually didn't read his poems. So he was extremely eccentric. He cultivated that. I believe it is really literally untrue that the American poetry establishment uh, didn't value him and didn't uh, admire his work. There are just too many poets and editors I know who think tremendously highly about him. And his obituary in The New Yorker, a wonderful a testimony to uh, how widely admired he was uh, by poets uh, near and far in the United States. But it is true, as Phil says, that he wrote so much that publishing houses couldn't keep up. And he personalized rejection and made that into an art form above and beyond anything I ever saw, you know, or I've ever seen. You know, writers like to grouse about these things, but I mean, he, he really made a kind of Mount Rushmore out of it. But it served him well. The fuel of rejection, which has to go all the way back into childhood to be an orphan, that's, uh, that's fuel he learned how to work. Well, that he, was his, that was the iron ore. He was certainly very passionate. Uh, I assume this would have come through in conversation with him. But the poems are very clearly very, very passionate, passionate poems. In Q&A, an interview with him, somebody said, does contemporary American poetry matter? He says, it matters to poets, and they're the only ones who matter. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's an answer. On the other hand, he also wrote, I think, a rather extraordinary poem called Two American Poets, in which the first section begins, there's no time left to write poems. If you will write rallying cries, yes, do so. Otherwise, write poems, then throw yourselves on the river 
to drift away. Well, gosh, uh, one says, you know, are, are we past the time when poetry really matters uh, or can matter? He clearly thought, whatever he might have said about it, he clearly thought poetry mattered. He, he thought poetry mattered, and he thought it mattered uh, in the way that the Russians uh, think it matters. And he was very, very both playful and daring, but dead earnest and dead serious. And, you know, he's also a compelling modernist voice. Really a great talent. And a genius. Yep. So maybe we'll kind of hold here uh, and just say uh, we've reached the end of this podcast about Bill Knott, but not the end of the whole podcast, because we have a couple of moments yet left for what we call appreciation, right, where we can bring forward something that we care about or are interested in or just want to attract some attention to. Georgia? Well, I'd like to say I've discovered two poets for myself at the Massachusetts Poetry Festival, and one is uh, Ocean Vong, who just left me breathless with his reading, his work. If I were Lee Young Lee, I'd be quite nervous. And the other is Ada Limon, who I would like us to talk about at some point in our conversations. Her new book is just so beautiful, and she has a grace with language that I admire and a bold voice at the same time. One of the uh, many hats I wear is associate editor and designer for Tiger Bark Press, and early in 2017, we'll be publishing a book called Knowing Not about Bill Knott, who we talked about on the program today. It's a book of essays and remembrances by other poets about Bill Knott. So early 2017, that'll be coming out. Well, looking forward to that one. That should be fun. Steve? Uh, I'm very fond of relatively recent book by the great American poet Stephen Dunn called Lines of Defense. And I like these lines in particular. It's, these are from a poem called Letter to the Man I Once Was. And let's say it's true that loving makes a place for love, opens you to the frightening possibilities of joy, and you also know that most romances are fraught with failure. Would you walk down that aisle anyway? And that's quite An lovely. important question. It seems to me that I would be wrong not to notice that the new issue of Nine Mile Magazine is just out, has some extraordinary pieces in it, and I just want to call attention to really the first poem in the whole magazine. It's by David Weiss, a friend of ours from Hobart and William Smith College. It's called Hardening Up. He writes, Yesterday, sun branded your back. Today, wind is roaring like the sea. Yesterday, there was plenty of time. Today, you can't even feel your toes. A buck lifts its head, ready to bolt. Yesterday, you'd stop to talk. Today, snow careens sideways, and you're not looking up. Later, the wood you split will be going up the stovepipe. We are the birds that stay, is how she put it, though going wouldn't change a thing. Your letter said as much, one, then two shots, far down the hill, and the buck is gone. You can survive getting lost or lonely if you don't lose your head. You can even survive the touch that melted your heart. This is the Talk About Poetry podcast, sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books, recorded here at the studios of WCNY Radio and Television. We hope you've enjoyed this production.